This is the Cato Daily Podcast for Monday, September 16, 2013. I'm Caleb Brown. The Obamacare Supreme Court decision is at once a tough case legally, fraught with politics, and entirely surprising. What's clear is the case has already inspired numerous follow-on challenges. Josh Blackman is author of the new book, Unprecedented, The Constitutional Challenge to Obamacare. We spoke today. So I think what the biggest change to this, this uh, case has brought us is how the American people think about the Constitution. Um, I think we witnessed a rededication to the Constitution through the Tea Party and other groups. These were groups who weren't just objecting to Obamacare on policy grounds. They were objecting to it on constitutional grounds. The government cannot make me buy broccoli. That goes against what the constitutional liberties we have. So that's one important sense. But I think in another sense, it actually places some limits on what the federal government can and cannot do. The first with the Commerce Clause. Uh, the Supreme Court said, and there were five votes for this position, that the federal government cannot force you to do something that you don't want to do. They cannot make you buy a product purely because it impacts the healthcare market. That's off the table. Second, with respect to spending, the federal government can tell a state, you have to accept this money or else we'll take away lots of other money. So there's a limit there. If the government wants to give money, there has to be a choice. People, the states as sovereigns have the ability to opt in. And these two aspects of the healthcare case would really uh, uh, have implications, perhaps not for any laws currently in the books or being thought about, but for future attempts to further infringe on both the individual and on the state as a sovereign. In Chief Justice Roberts' opinion, it was structured in such a way to indicate that a whole lot of the, the bulk of the opinion can only be applied to this case. It seems like this is nothing nothing new. Well, what I think the healthcare opinion represents is a, is a line in the sand with the Supreme Court saying, listen, if the Congress goes too far, we're going to police this line. Although the Supreme Court stopped short of actually striking down the Affordable Care Act, they expressed a strong willingness to be willing to police that line. This case wasn't, as many critics said, this going to be a nine-zero opinion. It's going to be an easy, open, and shut case. This was a tough case to resolve, putting aside all the other issues about uh, the politics and whatever. This was a tough legal case to resolve. And I think what the court said is, you know what, there have been a lot of federalism cases in the 90s. We're going to continue that trend. We're going to make sure that the federal government understands it's one of limited enumerated powers and not one of broad general powers, that states' rights matter, that they can't infringe on federalism. And to the extent that the court said, we're going to do this, this comes into play in cases like the Voting Rights Act case, in cases involving uh, international treaties, in cases involving um, other structural protections of the Constitution. There's a court said that the structure is important. In the words of Justice Kennedy, quote, structure means liberty, that our Constitution has these certain structural bulwarks that are important to protect freedom for all of us. These aren't just idle apartment barriers. You mentioned the Commerce Clause. How important is it that there is now some line on the uh, limiting the federal government's ability to uh, make use of the Commerce Clause to arrive at whatever power it wants? Um, I think it's very important with, because we have to consider the history. Um, in the 90s, there were two important Commerce Clause cases, one involving uh, can Congress prevent you from bringing a gun into a gun-free school zone? The Supreme Court said no because there's no interstate commerce. There was another case involving a Violence Against Women's Act. Uh, and the Supreme Court said that there's no commerce nexus there. But in 2003, there was a case argued by a Cato scholar, Randy Barnett, involving medicinal marijuana. And the Supreme Court said, even though there's no market for medicinal marijuana, Congress can regulate it because it impacts the broader war on drugs. That was seen as kind of a repudiation of the court's earlier opinions, which have said there are limits in the commerce power. But here we have NFAB v. Sibelius, where the court said, you know what? Notwithstanding the marijuana case, we have limits, and you have to follow them. And now everyone's on notice about that. Now, what does that do to future uh, legal cases, for example, involving 
marijuana, where states have decided to do one thing, but the federal government has decided, no, we are the ultimate regulators here. So, so unfortunately, the medicinal marijuana one's probably foreclosed because the court said by a vote of six to three that marijuana is okay. Although in another related news, the Justice Department has declined to prosecute in those states, which is kind of an interesting development. But where this will come into play is if there are any future laws that attempt to uh, uh, coerce people into doing something or trying to force people to do something they don't want to do. Um, and and this, this precedent will become important because there will be limits placed on what can happen there. Um, it will have to happen in the future that if Congress wants to force you to do something, they can now tax you on it. We know that. But taxes are unpopular. No one likes taxes. And you're going to have to take a political hit for taxing someone. It won't be enough to simply say, we're going to pass a law forcing you to do something under a commerce power. Now they have to say, we are going to tax you for not doing something. And they have to suffer the political consequences of such a law. Chief Justice Roberts, in his opinion, has effectively supplanted uh, the commerce power and said, oh, well, you can do this under the taxing power. Does that change a lot about uh, how this functions beyond what you just said? Well, yes. Taxes can't be punitive. And one of the important uh, aspects I talk about in my book, Unprecedented, the Constitutional Challenge to Obamacare, is that this saving construction, this tax only works so long as it's low. The reason why the Chief Justice was able to uphold the Obamacare mandate as a tax was because it wasn't that high. It wasn't coercive. But what the chief judge just said was, if the tax becomes very high, such that it's coercive and that it forces people to buy the insurance, it's unconstitutional. So one of the funny quirks of the Obamacare law is we're now stuck with a version of the law that's too low to work. Um, this upcoming year, I think the mandate for the average person might be about $500. The cost of insurance is much, much more than that. So for a rational person, we're all uh, uh, rational people here at Cato, it actually might make sense for a lot of people not to buy health insurance and just pay the penalty. If Congress tries to tweak it to raise the penalty to be too high, it becomes coercive. And by the Roberts' opinion, it's unconstitutional. So we're actually now stuck with a mandate that's probably too low to work in many cases. And if Obamacare doesn't attract in the young, healthy people and they choose to pay the penalty, we'll go into this what's called a death spiral. It sounds like an 80s rock band. Well, this death spiral of people not going to the market, people who are going to the market are the sick people. They raise rates for everyone, and the entire thing just might collapse. Um, we don't know what will happen. But this is a distinct possibility in light of the fact that people today don't know about Obamacare. They don't know they have to enroll. They don't even know what, what, the, what the law is. Uh, more people oppose the law than even know what it is. It's remarkable even today, to three years later. So I think we're going to have a serious uh, uh, issue about whether this mandate's even uh, good enough to work. The penalty, the tax, uh, whatever you want to call it, for not purchasing health insurance, the court didn't really, if I understand correctly, lay out what would constitute coercive? So is that an area that, uh, that we'll be exploring legally in the next couple of years? If it gets to the point where it makes more sense to buy insurance rather than to pay the penalty that the penalty is so high, that actually might be coercive because you don't have a choice. It's all about choices. You don't, the choice is, do I pay $1,000 for insurance or $1,100 for the penalty? Well, duh. Any rational person would just buy the insurance in that case. And I could see a valid constitutional challenge being brought at that point saying, listen, this, this, this penalty is too high. This is forcing me to buy insurance. It's no different than what happened to the states. What has Cato's role been in this? I mean, can you sort of spell that out? Sure. Um, Cato has been really integral in this entire challenge. Um, my good friend, Ilya Shapiro, who's the, uh, uh, who works in the Constitutional Studies Department here at Cato, uh, dedicated nearly three years of his life to this case. Um, Throughout the entire litigation, Cato filed a number of very important amicus briefs. These are friends of the court briefs with uh, district courts, courts of appeals, and the Supreme Court arguing about why this mandate is unconstitutional. 
And uh, Shapiro himself traveled to over 150 cities throughout the country debating this topic. Um, and it was very important that Cato was here because the, the, the other main think tank in town, Heritage, which for many years actually supported the mandate. Uh, they actually, yeah, there was actually this um, 1993 letter that Ed Crane said to Ed, Ed Fulmer, who was the president of, uh, of Heritage, saying, hey, this, this mandate thing is, violates our freedoms. This is, goes against everything Americans believe in, in individual liberty and individual uh, responsibility. So, so Cato has been on record opposing us for nearly 25 years. Um, it was really only when this litigation started that Heritage kind of changed their position and said that this is unconstitutional. The role of Cato can't really be overstated because they've been working tirelessly to try to oppose this law. Um, and as we discussed in the book, uh, at every juncture, they helped to furnish the intellectual framework and the uh, uh, intellectual underpinnings of, of making this challenge work. What surprised you most about this case in the process of writing the book that you didn't know uh, – beforehand. So what surprised me the most was actually the positions of the government. And I don't want to bore your readers too much with uh, arguments about the taxing power of the Anti-Injunction Act. But the government has a very unique role. They can't just make arguments that can win. They have to make arguments that fit with the broader institutional interests of the United States. So the, so the government looks like they're doing something very particular. Now, it might seem like the government tried to boggle the case and mess it up, but they were actually following a very close strategy they were willing to avoid giving limits on the Commerce Clause power. They weren't willing to give clear limits on what the government could and cannot do. But at the same token, the government was willing to frame this argument as a tax. They said to the Chief Justice many times, if you construe this as a tax and it's a constitutional, you should be doing this. They, they, they gave the Chief Justice a way to save it. And that's something that they really pushed hard that a lot of people kind of missed in the shuffle. So I found that quite surprising. Um, another thing that I found surprising what was kind of the entire Washington scene. I talk a lot about in the book about the politics and the intrigue, how people on both sides of the aisle were trying to sway the chief justice even after the case was decided, and how a series of op-eds and articles written by both liberals and conservatives trying to say, hey, Chief Justice Roberts, either grow a backbone or, hey, Chief Justice Roberts, do the right thing, uphold this law. And this entire proxy battle was waged in the streets of Washington um, um, outside the court. And I, I don't think that's ever happened before to this extent. Um, the amount of pressure on the court and the Chief Justice was simply remarkable. Josh Blackman is author of the new book, Unprecedented, The Constitutional Challenge to Obamacare. You can watch a Cato Institute forum for the book at our website, cato.org.